Amen. This Savior is worthy of us bringing our needs to. So as a church, we make it a regular practice to spend time at this portion of our service praying together, just asking together for God's work in our church, asking for him to work, showing our reliance on him. So if you would, we're going to pray together now. I'm going to lead us in prayer. If you'd join me and say amen if you agree with what I'm saying at the end of the prayer. Would you bow your heads and pray? Almighty God, we come to you the power and the authority who is over all things, and we submit ourselves to you. Father, we pray on behalf of our congregation and on behalf of the needs of our body today, and we ask that you would work in us to build in us a greater submission to your good authority. Father, as we come together in prayer, we are reminded, especially to pray for those who have graduated this year. Father, we think of those in our midst like Matthias Rummel and Lysia Chin, Connor Douglas and Lauren Hedman. Father, we thank you for this season of education that they've received and as they now graduate high school, we rejoice and we pray for them, O oh God. We as a church pray that you would work in their lives during this next season of their lives. Lord, we trust you and your plan for them and we ask that you would work in them. Father, as a church, we also are reminded to pray for Vlad and Phoebe as they head to, to Ukraine this Wednesday. Father, we pray that you would protect them as they travel to Poland and then across the border. We pray that you would protect them as they serve over the next 12 weeks. We pray that as they minister to the, the needy that they will meet, Father, we pray that they would clearly show the love of Christ and speak the gospel of Christ clearly. We pray that other Christians in Ukraine would be encouraged by these servants from our church. Work through them, we pray. Father, as we enter into June, a month which our culture has designated as Pride Month, we pray for your help and wisdom as we engage those around us, as we speak to our children, as we find clear conviction in your word about what is right and wrong, Father, we pray for our speech to be seasoned with salt. Father, may we be neither Pharisees who see ourselves as superior, nor may we be those who fail to say what your word says about sin. Father, we pray for those among us who struggle with same-sex attraction and gender confusion. Father, may they bring their struggles to Christ and find clarity in your word. Father, may they do what all of us must do. May they find their identity in Christ and submit themselves to him. Guide us this month, we pray, O oh God. 
Father, we all need your word to shape us. So we beg you, work in us this morning. As we go to your word, show us how we might grow. Father, show us Christ. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, when considering a leader or an authority figure, we are right to carefully examine how trustworthy they will be with their use of power. Just think about perhaps uh, affirming a new police officer. We're right to think carefully about who we will give a badge and a gun to. That power is important. Or, or think about marriage. Every parent and every counselor who has ever talked to a couple getting married knows that it's wise to make sure that the future wife is carefully considering who is the man that she will be marrying. And if it's a wise choice for her to marry him and, and submit herself to him, will this husband be a man who never abuses his authority in the marriage, but only uses it for the good of the home? Or think about e even us, a, a congregation, as we affirm a pastor or a new elder. It's right for a congregation to think if a man's character is above reproach. Is he trustworthy to use only the authority that God has given to that position and no more. With any new elder, in critical moments, will that man lay down his life for the sheep? Or will he use his position for his own good? Considering how trustworthy a leader will be in their use of power is just both natural and necessary. This is because it takes faith and courage to place yourself under an authority. Well, as important as this is in the church or in marriage or in governance, there is a greater authority than even these examples. That is, if the God of the Bible truly exists, then considering his authority and how trustworthy he is could not be more important. That's what we're going to see today in today's passage in the book of Luke. If you're here today and you're not a committed uh, follower of Christ, that's just not who you currently are, perhaps thinking about God's power, his trustworthiness, might sound a bit irrelevant or just unimportant. Uh, let me point out to you just briefly that you do place your trust somewhere, in some power or some authority. You, you might trust chance, you might trust society and the goodness of people. Likely, you probably place a good bit of trust in your own authority, your own power. But here's my question for you today. What if this story that we're going to see today is true? What if this really happened? What if this God, this authority, is true as this Bible, as this passage teaches us. Listen in as, as I teach and tell me, wouldn't you want this type of authority to be true in your life? If you've brought your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 8. 
We'll be in verses 22 through 39, the passage Caleb just read for us. I hope to show you today that Jesus is a trustworthy authority for your life today. And to do that, I'm just going to build my argument on four ideas from the text that come from this story. We're going to just walk through seeing the need for Christ's authority, the power of his deliverance, the risk of our unbelief in that, and then the freedom in Christ's authority. So consider with me, firstly, the need for Christ's authority. Our passage, which Caleb just read, includes two stories which actually mirror one another. Jesus calms a storm, and then Jesus saves a demon-possessed man. Both stories present this dire need, a, a crisis situation. Listen as I read from verse 22 and following. One day, he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and, they, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. Now, this picture here is of a, a natural emergency. These disciples were, were caught in a storm in the Sea of Galilee. Matthew's account, if you read it, uh, uses the word for an earthquake at sea. The foundations of the earth seem to be shaking. And so Luke tells us in verse 22, this is a windstorm, which by the way is the same word for a hurricane. What a relevant passage for Floridians. I'm sure you have no shortage of, of mental images of severe hurricane storms. Well, this one was at sea. Verse 24 tells us that the waves were, were raging in this storm. I, I find myself picturing footage that I've seen of, of small fishing boats out in the, the giant waves of the ocean, riding up and down these giant raging waves. The result was that their boat was filling up with water. Luke says it very plainly. They were in danger. And so verse 24 says, They went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Now, friends, I hope you see this. Their need is, is great in this moment. Their world is just out of control in their eyes. These, these are, by the way, seasoned fishermen who had spent their lives on the water, and they're convinced they're about to die. Can you feel the urgency of their need? I wonder what, what waves are raging in your life right now. Well, I wonder who is here ready to cry out, Master, we are perishing. Or, or how many of us might not be in a storm today, but are on the brink of a storm tomorrow. We might need to see this Master. These disciples are in need. Well, let's just pause. Let's jump ahead. Look down to the next story. Because this, this unrest and this dire distress is not only in the physical world, but it's in the spiritual world as well. Look at the story of this, this demon-possessed man down in verse 27. This is after the episode. You know, you know the end of the story. Caleb gave away the end. Like, they make it out of the boat. They get out of the boat, verse 27... When Jesus stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city 
who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. This man's situation was also dire. Luke describes it further down in verse 29. Luke says, for many a time, it, the demon, had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds by, and be driven in, by the demon into the desert. What must it have been like to be this man? He too is in need. Scripture is clear about the presence of the supernatural evil forces in this world. Uh, though many might not think they see them today, the devil and demons are real. If you wonder why, by the way, in, in your context, demonic forces like this seem less evident, oh, just perhaps one help to you might be to remember last week's text. Some soils are met with the enemy himself, working against the gospel. Other soils are met with the riches and the pleasures of the world which choke away the gospel. Regardless, these demonic spirits seem, as we read through the, the gospels, to be especially evident during the time of Christ. It, it's like as Christ is coming and this, this incoming king and this kingdom is arriving, it's just met with this uprising of, of spiritual opposition, of darkness with unusual frequency. And so we see here a man who is made in the image of God, and yet he is isolated. He is he's in shameful disgrace. He's tormented. He's controlled by evil spiritual forces. Luke makes clear that the town had they had tried to control him with earthly means. They had chained him up and so forth. But their external controls were just futile. They're useless. Now, at this point in the story, I'm just honestly tempted to not relate to this man. I mean, full disclosure, I haven't been breaking any chains this week. And I'm not running off into the desert. But friends, oh friends, I, I imagine you, like me, have been overcome by far lesser spiritual forces than a legion of demons. I suspect all of us can relate to the sheer power of, of evil desires at work within us, which, which create isolation in our sin and self-destructive similar sin patterns. We might not be possessed like this man, but the, the power of evil, the power of our sin, the, the power of the temptations of the evil one, we know all too well, do we not? How often have you put proverbial shackles and chains around sinful desires and found those shackles to be futile? You just break right through them. Friends, this man needed a rescue from a, a true spiritual authority. Can you not relate to that? Your anger, your pride, your greed, your lust, your tongue are all unable to be controlled, all unable to be shackled, to be chained by your own external power. 
We need something more for this spiritual fight. We need Christ's authority. Number two, the, the power of his deliverance. Go with, back with me again. Let's switch back, go back to the boat, and, and put yourself back in with those fishermen who are just drenched with water, bailing water from this, this sinking ship. And they think they're dying. Adrenaline is just rushing. It's, it's coursing through their blood. They've never seen this much water inside their boat. They say, this is it. We're going down now. They know they're moments away from sinking. And, and all the gospel writers who write about this are careful to note that Jesus, what is, it, what is Jesus doing at this moment? <laughs> the contrast is overwhelming. Jesus is in the boat sleeping. He's sleeping. He's doing the most passive thing that a human could do. He's sleeping in the boat. What is the lesson here? Matthew's account tells us he, he kept on sleeping in the storm. You can always picture them bailing water out. It's getting deeper and deeper. And he's still there. He's still just sleeping. Daryl Bach writes this. He says, the contrast is striking. The disciples are powerless. They doubt and panic. While Jesus rests in the midst of it all. A situation that is fraught with danger, in the disciples' view, is no cause for worry with Jesus. Oh, isn't this true about our Lord? So verse 24, we read that, that he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. And they ceased, and there was calm. Now, I don't think this word rebuke is referring to some demonic forces behind the storm. No, I think Luke is writing in such a way as to reflect how Jesus speaks to his creation as if he owns it. Relative to his greatness, this Category 5 hurricane is just a little storm that just needs to be put back in its place. As Philip Ryken says, creation's creator is also creation's Lord. You see, he made that water. He, he invented that wind. The, the power of a storm was his idea. And in that moment, Colossians 1.17 tells us, he still held all things together by the word of his power. And so he rebukes the waves. The sea is, is like a, a misbehaving child who hears his father's voice and immediately jumps to obedience. Is this how you view Christ's power today? Can you imagine? Can you imagine this? Can you imagine not just the, the waves merely slowing down, but just stopping in their tracks? The, the howl of the wind just gets quiet with, with only the noise of the disciples' clothes dripping wet into the boat as they sit there dumbfounded. What power of deliverance is this? This is like the, the prophet Elijah who stops rain 
but, but he did that by praying in the name of Yahweh. Or this is like Psalm 89, which tells us that this type of work is in the domain of God himself. Psalm 89.9, you, Yahweh, rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. But this man, this man didn't call on Yahweh. He himself rebuked the waves. Who is this? Friends, the power of Christ's deliverance is not merely over the, the natural, as we see in the story, but if we jump down again, we also see it in the supernatural. Think back to that demoniac, out of control. Look at verse 28. When the man saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. So you see, these demons inside this man were speaking. And, and notice how immediately they seem to recognize who Jesus is. The disciples were left questioning, but the demons knew. They also, notably, don't contest Jesus' power. They can't fight it. They merely beg Jesus not to torment them. For the spiritual world, there's just no question about Christ's sovereignty. So we read further down in verse 30. Jesus said to him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. So as Jesus is delivering this man, we see more evidence, by the way, that demons are real spiritual beings. They seem to have names. Many demons had entered this man, and so they called themselves legion. Now, this is significant because legion is the word for an army. It's a, it's a Roman company of several thousand soldiers. In fact, in, in Mark's account, when we read the same story, when they, the demons left and went and entered into the pigs, Mark tells us there's about 2,000 different pigs that they all entered. So we're talking about thousands here. Here's the point. Jesus is well outnumbered. He's not just facing down one powerful evil spirit. Oh, no, no. He's outnumbered by thousands of enemy soldiers. And yet, we see again, they are begging from Christ. The tormentors are afraid of torment. They are like these, these fearful and, and rebellious peasants before a king just groveling before him and asking for mercy. Now, by the way, I'm not a fan of many of, our, of Hollywood's depictions of d the demonic, and the exorcisms. I, I don't think they're healthy for us to watch, just honestly. Given the very little interaction I've had with such movies, though, I, I mean, I think they do a fair job of, of conveying some of the evilness of, the, of demons, but I think they do just a horrible job 
of representing the sheer weaknesses, the sheer weakness of demons before the power of Christ. Friends, Scripture emphasizes time and time again that evil spirits simply have no power before the power of Christ. This is the same Christ, by the way, who has promised to indwell his people. In fact, verse 31, these demons know their destiny. They're afraid of the abyss. This is probably the bottomless pit that we see in Revelation 20, where Satan will one day be sent by Christ. So they instead request to be sent to these pigs. And the question is not if Jesus has control over them. The question is what will Jesus command? So, by the way, notice verse 25, we saw Jesus commanding the sea and the waves. Now Jesus is commanding the spiritual world. He is the one that must give them permission. He chooses to use his command for this man's good. He delivers this man from this entire legion of demons by sending them to the pigs. I wonder if you believe that Jesus Christ has complete authority, utter authority over the spiritual world. This means that if you are in Christ, that you have nothing that you should be afraid of. This means that if you are in Christ, there is no darkness that can threaten your destiny. This means that if you are in Christ, the power of evil has just lost its right of control over you. It's like that, that moment in the Chronicles of Narnia when, when Aslan claims those who are his. And, and all these previous statues, just the, the, the witch's power just dissipates and, and melts. If you're in Christ, his power is ultimate. Colossians 1 says, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Colossians says that by him, that is Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Friends, if you're in Christ, evil has no hold on you. Christian, this should influence the way you fight your sin and temptation. The power of Christ is greater than the power of sin. As you fight sin this week, just ask yourself, if, if Christ has this type of control, this type of power over this, this legion of enemy forces, does he not have power to deliver you from temptation? If you're here today and you've not yet submitted to Christ's lordship, you should know that, that according to this book, your life is still currently in the domain of darkness. The Bible teaches us that since Adam and Eve, we are all born enslaved, shackled to sin. Before Christ, we're like this man, captured by evil and living self-destructive lives apart from any hope. We don't have power to rescue ourselves from this sin problem. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came and he delivered us from evil and sin. Christ came and died on the cross as our substitute. He conquered sin and death. He rose from the dead. And when he did this, he created a way that we might be right with him 
and so be free of sin's power. Believers, do you believe that? You are free to not sin. You are free from sin's power. Evil has no control over you if you are in Christ. We find Christ to be a better master. I would just invite you, if you are not submitting yourself to the Lordship of Christ, if you are not trusting in him by faith, come to him today. He is such a better master. He is such a a good authority. And when we submit ourselves to him, we get introduced to his, his new kingdom of light. We come out of the kingdom of darkness and we commit ourselves to him and this whole new kingdom. We were just talking about this in our, our new members class at starting point this morning. This is membership in a church is, is merely a, a visible commitment to this new kingdom. It's like we are now belonging to embassies in a foreign land that shine like beacons in the darkness. The sad thing is many people will see Christ's power and would prefer not to associate with Christ. They'd prefer not to associate with his church, his body. Many would prefer to sit on the outside from a distance. That's what we see next in the text. Number three, we see the risk of our unbelief. The risk of our unbelief. Look back at verse 33 and following. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. 34, when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got in the boat and returned. So the herdsmen spread the news of what's happening in the city and the country. The people come out, they hear for themselves, they're afraid. Then they ask Jesus to leave. They were seized with great fear. It's interesting, it's not lost on them, the power that Jesus had. They understood that. I I wonder, perhaps this man was famous. Perhaps he had lived outside the city for a long time. Uh, Perhaps some of the townsmen, perhaps some of these very men had come and, and wrestled him before. Perhaps some of them were the ones who had shackled him and merely to watch him then break the shackles. Or they were some of the ones who had been posted guard over them. Perhaps they knew firsthand the power of this demon-possessed man. Regardless, when they saw Jesus having power over that, with merely his words, they were afraid. Their unbelief produced cowardice rather than faith producing courage. Here's the irony. They were more afraid of the good authority that they didn't know 
than they were of the evil demonic authority that they'd grown comfortable with. The man, verse 29, had been seized by this demon. Now, verse 37, these townsmen are seized by fear. Rather than embracing Christ as Lord, they would just rather him leave and give them space. Notice just the sad irony of this text. Jesus' authority is not stopped by the wind and the waves. Jesus' authority is not stopped by the storm. Jesus' authority is not stopped by thousands of demons. Jesus' authority, next week we'll see, is not stopped by sickness of various kinds. Oh, but the greatest obstacle in this passage to Jesus' authority is unbelief. It produces fear that leads them to drive Jesus away. That, that, that gets personal. I mean, I, I'm just honestly, in our community, I'm not often afraid of a legion of demons. Oh, but unbelief seems so close to my heart sometimes. This is a similar theme, by the way, in the storm. If you just look back up at verse 25, when the raging waves ceased, he said to his disciples, where is your faith? They're afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the waves, and they obey him? Essentially, Jesus is asking, why didn't you have faith? Kent Hughes says it this way, the storm did not wake Jesus, but the unbelief of his disciples sure did. So now the disciples' unbelief, it wasn't as egregious as the townsmen. Notice, notice how they're similar and different. So two stories here of desperate need. Jesus powerfully delivers both. They, they both have some measure of unbelief. They both respond in some measure of fear. But the townsmen, they had great fear which led them to ask Jesus to leave. They don't ask him to leave because of the pigs. It's clear in the text. It's hearing what Jesus did, which makes them very afraid and ask them to leave. The, the disciples, they had a marveling fear, not a great fear, which led them to ask who Jesus is. Their faith might be lacking, but they want to know more. The risk of unbelief is that you might see the power and authority of Jesus Christ and say, no thanks. Not over me. I'm fine. Friends, this is what you're saying when you have areas of your life that are not submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You can imagine Jesus to be a small authority, but he is not. Jesus comes as our Savior and Lord, or he doesn't come at all. Seeing his power, you must run to him for complete transformation. Is there any area of your life where you are not submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Any whatsoever. Jesus looks over your life and he says, it's all mine. This is the risk of our unbelief. We should conclude Maybe you're saying with me, okay, I, I see the need for Christ's authority. And I, I see the power he has to deliver. And I, I, I don't want this unbelief. 
I don't want to risk that in my life. I don't want to be governed by fear that produces cowardice. But how? How does this happen? Consider lastly, number four, the freedom in Christ's authority. This is what the freedom of living in his authority looks like. It's centered, it's outward, and it's personal. Three things. Centered, outward, personal. Verse 28, the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming through the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. It's, it's centered. It is centered on Christ. The demons were begging. Did you see in the text? They're begging to go to the pigs. The, the townsmen are, are begging for Jesus to leave. And this man is now begging that he could stay with Christ. He wants Jesus. Seeing this good authority, he wants it. Oh, friends, you must treasure Christ. You must desire him. You must desire him beyond anything else you desire in this world. It must be centered. Your love must be centered profoundly, radically, with abandon on Jesus Christ. He must be your treasure. You must throw off the shackles of your previous life, whatever they are, and you must look to Jesus Christ and say, give me Jesus. But this freedom of Christ is also outward. Notice Jesus sent the storm away. Jesus sends the demons away into the pigs. And now we see a different type of sending. Jesus now sends the man away, but back to witness to others. This man is just now radically freed to go and tell others. You see, you're living under this new regime. You're not afraid for others to hear about it. Like, fear of man just is, is melting away as you have this awe-inspiring fear of God. You're ready to tell others about it. So you go back, get this, you go back to the very people that just sent Jesus away. Please, Jesus, leave. He gets on a boat and goes. Before he goes, he says, by the way, you go back and tell them. You go tell them what, he's, what I've done for you. freedom of Christ's authority. He says, go back and tell your, tell your family, tell your home. What does the man do? He tells the whole city. I guess I'll tell everyone then. It's centered on Christ. It's outward. Number three, it's personal. Here's the freedom of this new authority. It's personal. Return to your home and declare what? How much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming through the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. See, the, the herdsmen, they, they had run telling the people far and wide. Well, now the healed man runs, and he tells the people far and wide. But the difference is that it's clicked for him. For him, it wasn't just a story. No, for him, it was his story. This is what Jesus did for me. Do you want the freedom of living under Christ's good authority like this man? Well, when it clicks for you, when the, when the penny drops, 
when you really realize what he has done for you, you'll find this for you. Oh, friends, he died for you. How much God has done for you. Go and tell people. When you can see that it is done, it's not something you're still doing. There's nothing left to do. There's, there's no payment plan to pay him back. No, redemption has been accomplished, purchased, and finished. It's complete. You will then find this radical freedom to live and trust under his authority. It's free. It's because it's not about you anymore. You're freed up because you see what he's done. You have a case study, case A, me. He saved me. By the way, who in our world wouldn't listen to a personal testimony? That's, that's ultimate in our world. L listen to my story. What's he done for you? It's about what he's already done. He did it. It's finished. Oh, beloved, see your need today of his authority. Know his power. Reject unbelief. And then live in the freedom of that authority that is found in his finished work on the cross. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we praise you for Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall and bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Father, may we live under this authority. May it transform us. May we go out, not in fear or cowardice, oh, Father, but in the freedom and joy of those who have